If you have a copy of God's Word, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. If you would like to use the, uh, the Bible that's there in the chair, page 1015 is where we'll be today. Last week, of course, was Easter, and so we celebrated Jesus' resurrection. But a, a key question for us is, what does Jesus' resurrection have to do with you right now? Why does, why does it matter that the Son of God took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and then rose from the grave. What does that have to do with you? What is it, how does that affect the way that you live your life? And in many ways, that's what First Peter is all about. On Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights in our small groups, we've been studying the letter of First Peter. You can find it towards the end of your Bible. Peter's writing a letter to some Christians who are in a difficult spot. They've come to trust in Jesus, which is great, but that has put them at odds with the society around them. It's put them at odds with their families and friends and neighbors. And so Peter writes to encourage them and us and to teach them and us how to follow Jesus in a society that doesn't understand them. And so today... We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it to you? What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding it. Father in heaven, I pray that you would open our hearts to understand your word that you would help me to preach clearly and that your word would come with power to all of our hearts so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Show us Jesus, who we need, and we pray it in his name. Amen. What is your posture? Everybody just kind of straightened up a little bit, slouching in the seat. I don't mean your physical posture. I mean your, your posture or your pose towards other people. All of us, all of us have it, right? Uh, either maybe you're shy, maybe you're outgoing, maybe you're a very cautious or guarded person. Maybe you, maybe you wear your heart on your sleeve. But what is your posture towards others? Are you confident? Are you insecure? Are you a mixture of all of those? All of us have a, a default pose. All of us have a default posture, what we naturally wear, how we naturally approach others. And it's been created over time. It's part of the personality we were born with, but even that uh, is indescribably shaped and molded by our parents and by every experience we've had up until that moment, all of the... all. Of, up to this moment, right? All, all those interactions from then until now shape the way that we see ourselves, which is dreadfully important, our self-understanding, uh, but also uh, the way that we see others, the way that we interact with others. And Peter actually talks about both in this passage. Uh, he reminds Christians of who they are. He calls them sojourners and exiles. But then he also shows them and us how that self-understanding as a sojourner and as an exile affects our posture towards those around us, how we understand ourselves and how we act towards others. And here's what we see uh, in this passage is Peter says that our, our new identity in Christ teaches us to embrace new postures to the world around us. So we have an identity in Christ, uh, and that teaches us how we ought to engage the world around us. Now, the, the first part of Peter's letter has been primarily spent on how we understand ourselves. That's what he's been doing really up until now. But with these verses, with uh, chapter 2, verse 11, he begins to turn our attention to the society outside of us, to the world around us. And there are a couple of postures he mentions here. First, he says we need to embrace the posture of being a foreigner. That's the first thing he says. We also need to embrace the posture of a servant. 
And the way that we embrace the posture of a foreigner or an outsider and the way that we embrace the posture of a servant is by embracing Jesus's posture for us. So let's begin with that idea of a foreigner. When we say embrace the posture of a foreigner, what does that mean? Well, look at verse 11. Peter says, beloved, so he, we might say, dear ones, I urge you or I strongly encourage you as sojourners and exiles. Uh, we, might, we might better understand what Peter's saying there as strangers and foreigners. Uh, think, think about workers on an immigrant visa. That's, that's what Peter has in mind, right? Uh, people who live in a place permanently, but they are not from that place. Uh, that is not their primary home. Or you think of missionaries. People have moved uh, into a foreign context, but are on mission there. In fact, to, to get a sense of what Peter is saying, I want you to imagine, and I think I did this a couple of weeks ago, but imagine that tomorrow you woke up in a foreign country. What would you do? Right? The language and customs and values are strange to you. They're foreign to you. They're different from yours. Now, the good news is you're part of a team. You're not the only one. You're not by yourself in a foreign country. So good news. Um, you're part of a team, a group of people who, like you, is foreign to this culture. How would you act? What would you start doing? Hopefully, you would start getting to know your neighbors. Hopefully, you would seek to understand uh, who they are, their worldview, their beliefs, the, the stories uh, that they internally believe that shape uh, the way that they live. You'd start learning the language and culture and customs. Hopefully, you'd be respectful because you're an outsider. Right? There's no need to cause unnecessary offense or alienation. But you're also on mission, also. right? You're a, a representative of another kingdom. You're an ambassador. And so the worldview and the values and the story of God's kingdom, you want to bring those to bear on the place in which you now live, on your temporary home. Peter wants us to embrace that posture. Because that's the posture of every person, every Jesus follower, even if you live in Clanton, Alabama. Even if you speak English as your first language and you are a native Alabamian, Peter says, you're a foreigner. You're an immigrant. This is not your primary home. And so, church, I want to challenge you this week to put on a different set of lenses to look at your life and daily interactions look you may have been in this community for decades uh, starting today i want you to put on a different set of glasses and look at our community in a new way as a foreigner as someone who does not belong here but as someone who lives here Instead of the settled life of a native, 
I want you to embrace the posture of an immigrant, of a foreigner. How does a foreigner live in a foreign culture? Well, Peter gives us a couple of indications in these opening verses. First, he says, we need to abstain from the fleshly passions that wage war against our souls. Peter says that the the first battlefield is not out there. The first battlefield is here. That before I'm a culture warrior, I first have to do battle internally. I have to I have to reckon with the the passions, with the desires that rest in my own soul that that want to destroy my soul, that want to that want to attack and weaken my soul. Right before I'm a, before I engage in a culture war or if I never engage in a culture war, I need to engage in a spiritual war. Where do those desires come from? Well, they come from my sinful nature, right? They come from who I used to be. Peter in chapter 1 verse 18 calls this the useless way of life that was handed down from our ancestors, the way of life that we inherited. But he's been telling us that in Jesus, that old identity has been put to death. We no longer live that way anymore. We have a new identity which comes with a new way of living. But those old desires are still there. They're waging war. Right? They're not neutral. They're not just playing in the yard. They are waging war against my soul. And Peter says... We have to abstain. We have to put them away, right? To not give in, to not give up. We have to fight. So we abstain from the passions of our flesh, which wage war against our souls. And then along with that, Peter says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Who are the Gentiles? Well, in this case, it's everyone who's outside of the believing community. It's the people who do not yet know God. Peter says, live your life in an honorable way among the Gentiles. An honorable life. This tells us something. That even those who do not know God know what an honorable life is. In the first century and today... Everyone understands what a virtuous life is. They know what a good life is, right? The virtues of of kindness and courage and generosity and good humor, right? Uh, You can read read Greek philosophers and see that in the first century, those were things that were prized as virtues in society. And they're still prized as virtues in our society today, right? You don't have to be a Christian to understand what what a virtuous life is. But, just like in the first century, so today, we applaud a virtuous life. We just struggle to live a virtuous life, an honorable life. Christians in the first century were viewed suspiciously because they had broken ties with society in many ways. Uh, They no longer worshipped the same gods. They didn't observe the same holidays. And so that put them at odds with the society around them. They weren't participating in, in civic life the way that they used to. 
And so people were beginning to criticize and speak ill of them. But Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter says, in response to their criticism, live in such a way that they have nothing to say. Live in such a way that they have nothing to say, right? Don't validate their criticisms. Live an honorable life. So much so that those who criticize you today may end up believing in Jesus tomorrow. That's what Peter says. In fact, they may see your good deeds, especially under fire, and say, she really believes that. Maybe I should believe it too. That's what Peter, that's how Peter commends us to live. And so you'll notice uh, sometimes we can adopt a very binary way of seeing the world. We can say uh, Christian community, good. Society, bad. But that's not the way Peter sees it. He doesn't divvy it up into neat, tidy little categories like that. What Peter is saying is that we live in such a way, right? The, the tendency, there's, there's, two, there's two tendencies they could have embraced. One would be to withdraw. All right, you know what? They're criticizing us. They're saying mean things about us. They don't get this whole Jesus thing. Let's just start our own little colony over here. It'll be all Christian all the time. It'll be great. Right? Or we can... We can attack. If we're going to attack, if, if, if we're going to be attacked, we need to attack back. Right? We need to respond. Uh, with, violent, with, with criticism and maybe even with violence. Peter says, no, neither one. Neither one of those is how you are to live. You can't withdraw because they need to be able to see your good deeds. They need to be able to see this honorable life that you are living. In hopes that they would come to know the God that you know. This is, this is my own story. I remember uh, in the summer of 2000, uh, I was working with my brother, Kerry, uh, who's a couple of years younger than me. Uh, in that previous year, he had come to know Jesus. And I saw that change his life. And my life was at a dead end. And so watching his life made me begin to consider Jesus again. To begin to ask spiritual questions and to seek spiritual answers. That's what Peter wants for the life of everyone who is in Christ. Live in such a way that they would glorify God. I was talking with a, a friend uh, who is a Christian, but he worked as a, ser- as a server uh, at a restaurant. And he said that, that Sunday after, the, the Sunday lunch hour, Sunday afternoons were his least favorite time. Everybody, like everybody who's ever served a Christian after lunch is like nodding their heads, right? He said the people who would come in from church, they were the hardest. They had the biggest parties. <laughs> they would leave the biggest mess. Their children were the, were the least obedient. And they would tip the least. And there was always something wrong with an order. It always had to be fixed. That is not the honorable life that Peter calls us to. At least go home and change clothes before you take your, take your unruly kids to the restaurant, all right, and complain about your 
lukewarm steak. Embrace the posture of a foreigner. If you lived in a foreign country, how would you live? How would that affect the way that you treated other people? Peter also says, tells us to embrace the posture of a servant in two ways, in two arenas. First, towards the government, and then towards unjust authority. Government and unjust authority. How, how are we to relate, because of Jesus, because of the resurrection, how are we to relate to government and to unjust authority? Peter says, be subject, submit yourself for the Lord's sake, or because of the Lord, to every human institution, whether to the emperor or to his governors. I want you to notice a couple of things. He says to submit yourself for whose sake? Not for the sake of the emperor, for the sake of the Lord. Because you belong to Jesus, submit yourself to the governing authorities. Paul says something similar in Romans 13. Now notice what the government's role is. It says in verse 14 that the government's role is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Again, Paul says something very similar in Romans 13. Government is intended for the punishment of evil and the rewarding of those who do good. And so, uh, Peter says, uh, we can submit to the government as it performs that function. Does that mean we submit to the government when it does wrong? No, we do not. But even still, what is our posture? How are we to respond? He says this in 15. This is God's will, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Again, they're being slandered. They're being criticized because they are not conforming to the norms of society that they used to conform to. And so Peter says, I want you to live in such a way that you silence their criticisms. That there's nothing, right, if, if they go get the constable, right, if they go get the sheriff and say, hey, you need to go check out the Smith home, they've started following Jesus. That when the sheriff shows up, there's nothing there, right? They just, ha- there, 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 are, there are law-abiding citizens there. And then he says this, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. This is interesting. Peter says, we are free servants. The, the, The Christian life is one of a free servitude. Because our first master is God, we can live as free people to society. Right? He holds our primary allegiance. And because he holds our primary allegiance, that then impacts the way that we live in society. We live as free people, but we don't want to use that freedom as a cover-up for evil. And so at least one of the things that Peter is saying here is that our first allegiance is not to our country. Our first allegiance is to God and to his kingdom. Everything else follows after that. We are God's servants. 
It also means, I think, that we are not anarchists. That we submit to lawful authority. In fact, in another place, we're told to pray uh, for the emperor. We're told to pray for rulers. And we are to submit to lawful authority. Because by so doing, we silence the ignorant talk of the talk of uh, the ignorance of foolish people. And so he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, the church, fear God and honor the emperor. I don't imagine Peter knew that in just a few short years of writing this, it's likely that this is just at the beginning of Nero's reign. Um, and so I don't imagine Peter knew what was to come at Nero's hand. And yet his commands still stand. They are the word of God even still. And each of us has to sort out how we're going to live, how we're going to honor a governing authority uh, over us. Peter also says that we embrace the posture of a servant when it comes to unjust authority. In verse 18, he's talking to slaves, household slaves, probably who had come to know Jesus, but were still a part of maybe unbelieving households. And he says this, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So the, the Christian servant, maybe by virtue we would say in our day, we would say the Christian employee is to serve with all respect. Not just the good bosses, but to the bad as well. Because Peter says, this is grace. That's exactly, literally what it says in 19. This is grace when mindful of God... You endure uh, sorrow while suffering. That your consciousness of God, your awareness that you belong to God, enables you to suffer unjustly. How different is that from the way that we usually respond to injustice? Right? We usually respond with an entitlement. I deserve better. And Peter says, you're missing the point. You probably do. But you know what? Be mindful of God and suffer anyway. That's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow. But Peter says this is grace. Verse 20, it's grace when you do good and suffer for it anyway. It's grace in God's sight. We embrace the posture of a servant. That's hard. How do you... How do you receive unjust treatment when you know you deserve better? What enables you to suffer when wronged? Uh, What enables you to submit to a government that you know you disagree with at times? And that's where Peter turns us to the example of Jesus. The only way that we're going to embrace a new posture is if we first embrace Jesus' posture Towards us. Look at what he says in verse 21. To this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. And he leaves you an example. So that you might follow 
in his steps. You could literally say footprints. Jesus has traced the path for you. He suffered for you, and he showed you the path to walk on. He committed no sin. He didn't, he didn't do anything wrong. No deceit was found in his mouth. He never tried to lie. He never tried to manipulate anyone. Verse 23, when he was verbally attacked, he did not verbally attack in return. Look, if, if anyone has ever deserved better, it was Jesus. If anyone ever deserved not to be verbally assaulted, in fact, the only person who's never deserved to be verbally assaulted is Jesus. And Peter tells us that when he was verbally assaulted, he refused to respond. He refused to attack. When he suffered, he did not threaten as they were pounding his face and whipping his back and spitting on him and calling him vile names as the whole order of creation is upside down the king of the earth who deserves all glory and honor is shamed and reviled and beaten as everything turns upside down it says he did not threaten but what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted. Who did he trust? His father. He knew that this was the father's path for him. He knew that this was the only way that he could go, and he went down that way willingly. Now, he went down that way knowing the cost. In fact, the cost was so great that the night before he went down that road, he prayed so hard that it looked like he was sweating blood. Jesus was grieved by what he had to face at the end of that road. But how did he conclude that prayer? Not my will, but yours be done. Right, three times Jesus prayed, if possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. If there's any other way we can go down about this, I would love to do that. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. He continued to entrust himself to his father because he knew his father judges justly. That the father would sort everything out. That the Father would work everything out in its good time. Jesus did that for you. Peter says, He himself bore our sins, quoting from Isaiah 53, which Jay read earlier, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took our place. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He took our place to give us a new life. By his wounds, you have been healed. That does not make a lick of sense. What kind of, what kind of wounds heal people? 
right? That, that makes no sense to, to, to our modern concept, but, but that's exactly what Isaiah says and exactly what Peter says, that Jesus' wounds heal us, and they enable us to receive injustice when it comes our way, right? As the author to the Hebrews would, said, would say, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, right? When you feel piled upon, when you feel attacked, when you feel like I am not getting what I deserve, what Peter wants you to do is say, ah, but Jesus, my Savior endured this and much more for me. And he charts the path for me to follow. He's left, he's left his foot, footprints so that I can put one foot in front of the other and follow him. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. What about you this morning? Have you entrusted yourself to the one who judges justly? Are you following the good shepherd down the road of suffering? Jesus is for you. Repent and believe in him. Let's pray. Our gracious God... Thank you for coming to get us. Thank you, good shepherd, that when we were straying, when we were the lost sheep, that you came and you got us. And you brought us home. And you did so at great cost to yourself. You bore our sins in your body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Lord, I pray this morning that we would trust in you and that by the power of your spirit, you would enable us to live the life that you've called us to live. Help us to embrace the servant, uh, uh, the, the posture of a foreigner. Help us to embrace the posture of a servant because we have embraced you as our suffering Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.